This special series of the Leaders in Payments podcast, titled Be Solid, is brought to you in collaboration with NMI, the fully integrated payment solution built to scale. In this six-part series, we're going to discuss the embedded finance revolution, why it is so powerful and growing exponentially, and where it is heading. Most importantly, what does it mean to your business, whether you're an ISV, ISO, Payfac, or bank? In a world of squares and stripes, be solid. I go on a website, I buy a trip, for example, to Asia, and then I'm offered a travel insurance at this point. That's embedded finance. I go to a shop and I want to buy a TV, for example, and I get offered some loan facilities based on the profile that this store has on me. That's embedded finance as well. So it's really providing this financial slash also insurance, I think it's really important to say insurance and, and lending as well, provide it to the customers exactly at the point they need it with the least friction possible. That was Sophie Gibaud, the co-founder and chief commercial and growth officer at Fiat Republic. And she is my special guest on this episode, episode 232 of the Leaders in Payments podcast. And I'm your host, Greg Myers. As we continue our deep dive into the Be Solid campaign brought to you by NMI, Sophie, who co-authored the book called Embedded Finance, and I talk about the definition of embedded finance, who the key players are, the importance of tech companies who own the data, as well as the multitude of benefits of embedded finance for both consumers and brands. We've got a great episode ahead, so let's get started. Hi, Sophie, and welcome to this episode of the Leaders in Payments podcast, where we're going to be doing a deep dive on embedded finance. So welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Greg. I'm I'm glad to be here. Great. So First of all, tell us a little bit about your current role at Fiat Republic and a little maybe personal and career background about how you got there. Yes, absolutely. So my name is Sophie Guibault. I am the, the co-founder of Fiat Republic. Fiat Republic is a crypto-friendly banking aggregator. So basically, we do embedded finance for crypto platforms. But my background, I started my career in finance, and then I have spent the last 10 years actually a bit more than 10 years in embedded finance or where the early stage of it, which is basically banking as a, as a service. So I first joined a company called Bankable. We were helping fintech launch basically digital bank and competitive propositions to, uh, to what we know as, uh, as banks. That was at the beginning of the 2010s. So when there was this first fintech wave coming up to, to challenge the banks, then I spent five years at, uh, at Fidor, where I launched a digital bank in the UK from Germany. Fidor was a German digital bank. And then for the past, the other years at uh, Fidor, I spent uh, three years helping tier two and tier three banks launch, launch digital banks to compete with the fintechs. Then I spent a couple of years at, uh, at OpenPaid with a, a banking and service provider. And then I launched uh, Fiat Republic. So I, I really spent past 10 years in banking as a service, even used banking as a service, I think, for the first time after Chris Kinner introduced the term uh, for our company, Bankable, back in the day. I have always been a very strong advocate of how it could help companies launch propositions that are more relevant to customers. 
And the embedded finance wave, I've been praising it, I think, since 2014 and got so excited when I saw it finally get like the traction it deserved in the past few years. Yeah. And, you know, I feel honored to have you on the show. You obviously have a lot of experience and background and you're the co-author of a book that happens to be entitled Embedded Finance. So perfect fit for our series that we're doing. So a little question about the book. So, I mean, obviously you have a passion about this topic, but what actually inspired you? Why did you decide to write this book? Yeah, like uh, it's a great question. I think I had a kind of awakening. It was back two years ago. So as I have just been mentioning, I was a strong advocate of embedded finance before the terms even uh, even exist, saying it's going to happen. Banking will be everywhere except at, at banks itself, or we will be banking everywhere except banks. And I joined a group which is called Fintech and Payments Club in, uh, in Clubhouse in February 2021, I think. And Clubhouse was getting a lot of traction. And at this point, I was just like, oh, I want to invite people from the industry. I was seeing more and more people doing interesting things around embedded finance. But I think the point where I got really decided I wanted to focus at first the clubhouse and then write the book was when I saw the annual report, investor report of Grab that was showing that now Grab financial services was bigger than Grab restaurants and Grab transport. So Grab being, of course, the challenger or like the equivalent to Uber in Asia. And at this point, I was just like, okay, I've been talking about it for so many years and it's actually happening. And it actually has been happening in the background because nobody had really noticed. And then looking to it, I realized that Shopify had done exactly the same. Exactly at that time, now more than 50% of revenues of Shopify were coming from financial services. And both of those examples were showing that actually immediate finance was proven in the sense that Customers wanted it and there were no ways to execute it for companies that were tech companies, but not with a financial services background initially. And so with this realization, decided to create this, this clubhouse series and interview many people from the embedded finance space and eventually got together with my friend Scarlett of Cyber uh, from Money 2020 and decided to write a book about it because we had interviewed many people and we thought it was really time to raise awareness in the industry, whether you're a user of embedded finance or a tech player or infrastructure provider or a bank for actually everybody to consider what would be the impact on their life or what should be the impact on the strategy of their companies. Okay. So let's go ahead and, and dive deeper into the to the topic at hand, which obviously is embedded finance. So let's start at the highest level. How do you define embedded finance? Embedded finance, at its simplest definition, is providing finance at the point of context for users. So what it means is that, for example, I, or finance or insurance products, for example, but I go on a website, I buy a trip, for example, to Asia, and then I'm offered a travel insurance at this point. That's embedded finance. I go to a shop and I want to buy a TV, for example, 
and I get offered some loan facilities based on the profile that this store has on me, that's embedded finance as well. So it's really providing this financial slash also insurance. I think it's really important to say insurance and, and lending as well. Provide it to the customers exactly at the point they need it with the least friction possible. Okay. Yeah. And I think in the US, it's often been an extension of embedded payments, right? So a lot of companies started by just integrating or embedded payments. But in my view, and I, I think a lot of people agree, is that it's such a bigger thing than just embedding payments, right? It's embedding financial products. So to your point, lending and, and other insurance, other financial services type products. So to me, that's embed like that's the way you defined it. It's embedded finance is this broader thing than just embedded payments. But I always like to bring that up because I don't want people to think we're talking about just embedded payments. I mean, obviously that's a part of it, but that's not all of it. I totally agree. And uh, embedded finance recovers like plenty different forms, which is essentially providing anything related to the financial health and life of customers when they need it. Right, right. So who are the key players and in in what is the key technologies that's used in this space today? Yeah, absolutely. So for the, the small, let's say, uh, story, when we wrote the book with Scarlett, we wanted to have a bit of everything in the sense like to appeal to, uh, to end users to understand the impact. But we were really precious about writing a full chapter on exactly those providers and like this value chain. And editor kind of pushed back or questioned us, and we, but we, we thought it was so important because actually embedded finance without a whole ecosystem that has essentially developed over the past 10 years would not be possible. So now if we look about specifically the actors, I think the first one that would be an external one, but is like the most important one are the regulators, the local regulators that are empowering the ability for tech companies to use the licenses of other uh, regulated entities to provide services to their own end users. And embedded finance has been enabled or unlocked thanks to this type of setups. In Europe, for example, we would talk about agency becoming the agent of an EMI agent of an EMI money institution or and the agent of a bank can take like different legal form. But it takes what's important to, to point out is that without the regulators putting a framework to make it work, we would not be as far as we are right now when it comes to embedded finance. So I, I think it's worth mentioning this part. Now, when we are talking about the value chain itself, so you have the tech companies or retail companies actually that own the audience, uh, that own specific sets of data on the audience. That means they, they know them very, very well. And these companies not specifically don't have like an experience when it comes to financial services. But they realize that providing financial services at the point of context to their users would not only bring revenues to them, evidently, but more value to the customers, a better experience and also a stronger stickiness to their brands. And if we look at the different reports out there when it comes to embedded finance, what we see is that basically consumer, like brands actually launch embedded finance services, firstly 
for customer stickiness and loyalty and experience. Secondly, for revenues. So that's, um, that's quite an interesting part. And those companies, when they launch that type of services, they need to wonder, to wonder how they're going to do that. Do we go full on and take, get a banking license and uh, create a separate entity or are we doing it internally? Do we need to put those capital requirements that goes with getting a license apart? How do we acquire all those talents? How do we set up all those processes? So that would be like the full on approach. Now there is a less full on approach, which is to cooperate with a bank and using the bank license and their banking capabilities to actually service end users. So for example, it's uh, what Shopify has been doing with Goldman Sachs and their TXB platform, uh, for example, and a different range of, of banks. Actually, Shopify has done it with Stripe and it's Stripe that has done it with Goldman Sachs and, uh, and the likes. And then you have also an approach where you work with a middleware, basically uh, a middle layer that themselves are a regulated entity contracting with banks, but aggregates different banking facilities aggregate different banking providers, products across geographies, and then basically the brand contract with this middle layer. And this is, for example, what we do at Fiat Republic in a crypto context. We work ourselves, we are a regulated entity in the UK, we'll be in Europe in the, in the next few months. We contract with banking partners, but our customers are using our license and we enable them to offer basically fiat on-ramp, off-ramp to their end users. So finance, again, at the point of, of context. So you have plenty of different setups um, that are possible depending on what you want to invest, the kind of regulatory setup that uh, you want, the investment that you want to put in, and whether you want to do the operations or not. So for example, like the likes of Solaris are doing the, uh, the KYC in partnership with another partner. But this means that when you work with them, you have like less operation on the day to day. So some players, some brands, tech providers might want to just stick to the brand and the interaction with their consumers, but might not want to own like the operations. Or maybe they would like to own the operations because they think that it's so close to their brand that it's really important and strategic that they own it. So. It's a lot that I'm saying, but I just hope it, it shows that it's a patchwork and that we have such a big range right now of options that it really means that the brands can really create the experience they are dreaming of for their end users. Okay. And so there are a lot of, to your point, a lot of players in, in this ecosystem. There's a lot of different technologies that all have to come together. And then to your last point, the brands are trying to create something that adds value to their relationship with their consumers. So what is what is that opportunity there for those brands? I mean, it's easy to say, you know, oh, we can add payments, we can add lending, but overall, like, and I think you kind of mentioned it, but maybe maybe dive deeper into that whole area of like the stickiness and the consumer relationship coming first and revenue coming second. You know, what are the opportunities for those brands? Yeah. You know what? I would like to take two examples. Do you remember the first time you used Uber, Greg? Yeah. 
And how did it make you feel when you get out of the car without paying? <laughs> yeah, like you were stealing or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But also anyway. the best, right? Not to right. like get your card out and having this moment where you, you need to pay, the guy needs to give you the receipt, but because... Yeah. And this is all about it, right? Back uh, in the days, Uber was all about the experience. I think they are still are very much, to be fair. But the way they made us feel around payments just explain what embedded finance can do for a brand, right? Like, I personally felt that I was using Uber more often, more than traditional cabs. Mm-hmm. Because not needing to deal with receipts, knowing that they would be in my emails later for when I needed to claim them, knowing that I could link it, for example, to a virtual card, all that type of simple things that just makes life easier. And when you need to claim back your receipt, for example, it's just easier for you. So for me, like it really shows how this experience, I really remember the first time I did it on Uber and like it was not called embedded finance at, at that point, but how it made me feel more loyal to Uber than like local taxi companies, just because with them, I knew I would have a great payment experience. And if there was anything going wrong, I could claim back easily, like much more easily than having to log in on my um, my card interface, do chargeback, all that type of thing. So that's the first thing. The second one that I think, like not everybody has experienced yet, but that is quite new, it's Amazon Fresh. I don't know if you heard about it. No, I have not. Okay, so in the UK, and I think there is one in the US as well, Amazon has opened a shop and you go to the the shop, you put everything you want in your basket and then you get out of the shop. Okay. And that's it. So you don't need to queue, you don't need to scan, you don't need to do anything. The shop recognizes you when uh, you arrive and then you just need to get out and it's linked to your card on your Amazon account. And basically a few minutes later, you get like the full details of what you have purchased and it's just taken from your, your card. You don't have to, to queue or to scan or to do anything like that. And again, it's a great experience. Like uh, if you think about specifically rush hour, right? And when you don't want to queue, Again, it's a reason why you, I guess you would go more to Amazon Fresh than you would go to any other, any other store. So the only thing here that I like, we have explored also in the book and that I was mentioning is that some people and actually everybody, I mean, I think it benefits everybody at some point to, to some extent have cash in hands to be able to control expenses. Because of course, like when you go to, those shops and you, you do your purchases, it's maybe more difficult to actually like really track what you are spending. So when we were interviewing people for the book, they were mentioning that, for example, for their Christmas shopping, they preferred to have cash in hand to, uh, to make sure they were not overspending and really sure they were budgeting correctly. So I would say that those are potentially the, the limits to embedded finance. I'm sure it's going to be covered in the next few years by whatever notifications that you are receiving that you can afford what you have in your hands or, or whatever. But yeah, so the, the benefits are really like providing this wow experience and, and just bringing like removing the friction from payments. That can be the case nowadays. Okay. Okay. So if we step back and think about more broadly, how this impacts the different 
groups. So I think we talked about how embedded finance impacts consumers. I think you gave a couple of good examples of how it makes our life easier. What is the broader impact on technology companies, for example? So the companies that make all the plumbing happen and, and all, all of that, and maybe their traditional payments rails or something like that. What is the impact on technology companies? Yeah, so that's a, that's a good question. Just if you allow me, I would like to complement an end user because I have talked to you about the experience uh, specifically on, on retail context. But something we didn't touch upon is the experience in an online context and specifically access to financial services for people that would be rejected by banks. And um, there were a couple of examples coming from Shopify and, and from Stripe that I think are really worth mentioning. Okay. So Shopify, for example, they launched a business bank accounts for their users because what they realized is that their users were setting up some online stores, but it was taking them two to three weeks to get bank accounts. They needed to like uh, provide business plans, all this type of thing. And sometimes also when, for example, they were going in periods of rush, for example, Black Friday, Christmas, they couldn't get like loans as fast as they wanted or at the good condition as they wanted. And that's why Shopify like launched those financial services because they gather all the information that they need to open a business account instantly. They know e-commerce business models, so they don't need to explain it to the, the bankers. So really removing this friction of having a uh, bank account between two and three weeks to zero. Mm -hmm. And also they gather all the data on the stores of their, their users, which means that they know where, like what will be the prospective sales of people. And that's much easier to do loans to them. But it also means that with all the data that they have, they can provide a financial loans that are at better financial conditions that a bank could do. So there is really this data play that from tech companies that can enable to provide better financial terms just because they have a better understanding of the business of their users and they have much more data than the banks. And if they don't have more data than the banks, at least they understand it more in depth because they have the correct system to understand it while banks might not have some systems that are as accurate. So that's the broader impact. It's not only the smooth experience, but for business owners, it's really enabling them to do more business and like improving financial terms, improving financial inclusion. Okay. So that's for the end user part. For the tech company part, I think it has, I mean, embedded finance has been a massive opportunity, like through what we call banking as a service providers. But banking as a service providers have existed for now almost 15 years. I think what we have seen is the first range of banking as service providers, like, as I had mentioned, enabling fintech companies to, uh, to launch. That was the first phase. The second phase has been really like banking as a service vanilla, like one fit all approach. I think this embedded finance revolution brings the opportunity to banking as a service providers to launch or specialize in specific niche segments where basically they would develop a specific services here to answer the, need, the needs of specific markets. And by that, I'm saying, of course, crypto platform for Fiat Republic, because it's what we do. But I'm also meaning for, for example, marketplaces, 
It's something that has been booming, yet uh, paying out merchants is always very complicated. So like you can really offer this banking as a service niche offerings that brings lots of opportunities to tech providers. And of course, like all those reports saying embedded finance is, is taking off brings lots of opportunity for those banking as service providers to ride on those waves. And finally, I was talking about the banks. Well, we have some banks that have made embedded move when it comes to embedded finance. There is Westpac in Australia. There is Goldman Sachs in, in the US. In Europe, we have like the likes of ClearBank, Banking Circle, Trezor that has been purchased by, uh, by Societe Generale. So we have seen these different moves. But what we also say in the book is that those moves need to happen right now. I mean, like, for banks to consider embedded finance five years' time, I mean, there will be stickiness of the tech companies to their existing providers. So there is like a first mover advantage for sure that needs to be taken into account when it comes to timing when you enter embedded finance for banks. Okay. Yeah. I'm glad you added banks to that because that's a, that's a whole nother player that is kind of sitting out there that either, you know, has to get on, get on the train or they're going to miss it completely because they're being disintermediated in some ways through this embedded finance revolution that we're talking about. So another question, and this may or may not have been covered in the book given the timing, but globally, I think we've seen a slowdown in technology investments. And at least here in the US, we're talking about potential recession. Have you seen the embedded finance kind of ecosystem? Have you seen that momentum slow down at all? Or is it still going full charge ahead? I haven't seen any slowdown, to be fair. Like, when it comes even our own crypto platform clients, I mean, the people that raised are currently launching their embedded finance proposition. They are working on it, right? It takes some time, like there is like potentially becoming regulated, etc. So when it comes to us, Fiat Republic, we haven't. Generally, when it comes to embedded finance, I would expect that potentially in terms of volumes, there has been lower volumes. Maybe some people taking less loans because they get more, they get more expensive. We have seen that in the real estate space. So why not on the consumer space? Also, like I would expect that, unfortunately, with that, the people that have been made redundant, maybe some of them will need some, um, some buy now, pay later uh, facilities. So that would be the thing. But I would expect that the, uh, the companies that raised with the purpose of launching embedded finance propositions are currently launching. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't expect a massive, massive slowdown. But if it keeps on the recession slash inflation <laughs> slash everything else happening, there might be indeed like, um, some slowdown, but I haven't seen the figures. Okay. Okay. And, you know, we've talked about, I think, what's going on today and who the players are and what it is and all those kinds of things. So now kind of get your crystal ball out and let's talk about the future. So what do you think embedded finance looks like, say, maybe five to seven years out? Yeah, so that's a a good question. It's actually like something that we had like a bit of fun doing as part of the book, we created a chapter telling uh, like what's the like of people in 2030. So do you mind if I just read a short paragraph? No, go like, ahead. 
Okay. Go ahead. Because I think uh, when I, like you asking this question would uh, just, yeah, like uh, this example would be super relevant. So we are talking about Mia. Let's start with what they might be like in the life of a middle-class consumer in 2030. Mia wakes up at 7 a.m. to the soft sound of classical music playing from the speakers in her bedroom. The shower is on, the coffee is brewing, and a holographic display shows her the balance in her bank and investment accounts, and notes price movement in a cryptocurrency she holds. She also receives health data upon awakening. Her heart rate is steady, but she's a bit dehydrated. While she slept, her smart home system paid for the next two months anticipated power in advance because the price is predicted to rise soon. Over the course of the day, her cloud-based wallet, boosted by machine learning and trained by Maya's preferences and risk tolerance, performs several transactions to optimize her finances, putting her in a more advantageous tax position and earning her a few dollars here and there. As she eats breakfast, her bills to be paid are reviewed and her budgeting app informs her she has saved enough for her next month's vacation. She asks Alexa to book the tickets on a travel site and purchase insurance for the trip at the same time. She also asks her to book an Airbnb and purchase a prepaid entertainment pack for the cities she's visiting. All of this information appears instantly in her virtual wallet and is shared with the person she's traveling with. She has never been to a bank. She has several financial services accounts, and while she's not clear on what they are, she knows how much she pays in fees each month. But as to how the financial infrastructure behind her wallet works, she has no more need to know that she knows how her car engine works or how the refrigerator stays cold. So that's just an extract, but basically it, it, it's like we, we try to convey what it could look like. We are talking about worry-free finance management and frictionless payments, basically, and optimization without thinking about it. Do you think we can get there in, by 2030? I honestly hope so. Did you expect uh, chat GPT to, uh, to blow the way it, it did? <laughs> no, I, I just, it's it's fascinating to think about all of those components that you you know that were in that paragraph. Just um, it's also the trans you mentioned it sort of the transparency and in, in in fees and not really having to know how all the things behind the scenes work and so many things done in advance and automated for her and it's a fascinating world that we're headed towards. I think I, I think it's going to happen. That's the truth. 2030, like, I don't know, you know, but again, having seen chat GPT the way, like, it just arrived and, and <laughs> out of nowhere, out of nowhere, I kind of feel like it, uh, it could be, it could be the case. I certainly see integration between Alexa payments and optimization of wallets. It's actually something that Dave Birch, that you might know, has been talking about. There is also Matt Harris from Bain Capital Ventures. We both interviewed them and it's a kind of recurring topic, Brett King as well. So there is some kind of convergent thinking in the fact that there will be those kind of wallets that are moving and optimizing things in between each other based on your preferences. Yeah, yeah, I think it's all, it's all definitely coming. So we've covered a lot of ground already and I want to make sure that we cover everything that you 
set out to in this session. Is there anything else that you'd like to talk about before we wrap up? I think we're fine. I would just encourage people for sure to read the book if they're interested in um, in the topic. So the book is Embedded Finance is published by Wiley. It's available on Amazon and it's written by myself and Scarlett Sieber. Okay. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. I know your time is very valuable, so I, I really appreciate you being here today. It's a pleasure, Greg. Thank you. And to all you listeners out there, I thank you for your time as well. And until the next story. Thank you for listening to this episode in our special series, Be Solid, brought to you by NMI, the fully integrated payment solution built to scale. For more information on embedded finance and this episode, please visit www.nmi.com slash resources slash podcasts. And remember, in a world of squares and stripes, be solid.